This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. Thank you, and good afternoon. Well, I want to say how delighted I am to uh, be here to debate this most important topic. This is my first visit to Australia, and uh, I've already been enjoying the beauty of this fantastic city, despite the uh, inclement weather. And I want to say, too, that I'm very eager to meet students during my two weeks here, so please take the opportunity to come up after the debate and introduce yourself. I'd like to get to know as many folks as I can. Now, in today's debate, I'm prepared to defend two basic contentions. First of all, that there are no good reasons to think that atheism is true. And secondly, that there are good reasons to think that theism is true. Now, let me say just a brief word about that first contention, that there are no good reasons to think that atheism is true. Atheism, the claim that there is no God, is just as much a claim to know something as is theism, the claim that there is a God. And therefore, it requires evidence. Now, atheist philosophers have tried for centuries to disprove the existence of God, but no one's ever been able to come up with a convincing argument. So rather than attack straw men at this point, I'll just wait to hear Philip Adams' answer to the following question. What is the evidence that atheism is true. So let's turn then to my second basic contention that there are good reasons to think that theism is true. Now I'm not claiming that I can prove that God exists with some sort of mathematical certainty. Rather I'm claiming that it is simply more probable on balance that theism is true rather than atheism. And specifically I'm going to argue this afternoon that it's probable that a personal creator of the universe exists. We can begin by taking the existence of the universe as given. But have you ever asked yourself where the universe came from? Why everything exists instead of just nothing? Logically, either the universe had a beginning or it is beginningless. Atheists have always said that the universe is just eternal and beginningless. But we have persuasive, philosophical, and scientific reasons to think that the universe did have a beginning. Philosophically, the idea of an infinite past seems absurd. Just think about it for a minute. If the universe never had a beginning, that means that the number of past events in the history of the universe is infinite. But mathematicians recognize that the existence of an actually infinite number of things leads to self-contradictions. For example, what is infinity minus infinity? Well, mathematically, you get self-contradictory answers. For example, if you subtract all of the odd numbers from all of the natural numbers, how many numbers are left? Well, an infinity of numbers. So infinity minus infinity is infinity. But suppose instead you subtract all of the numbers greater than two. How many are left? Three. So infinity minus infinity is three. And it needs to be understood that in both these cases we are subtracting identical quantities from identical quantities and yet coming up with contradictory answers. In fact, you can get any answer you want from zero to infinity. 
This shows that infinity is just an idea in your mind, not something that exists in reality. David Hilbert, perhaps the greatest mathematician of the 20th century, stated, and I quote, the infinite is nowhere to be found in reality. It neither exists in nature nor provides a legitimate basis for rational thought. The role that remains for the infinite to play is solely that of an idea. But that entails that since past events are not just ideas, but are real, the number of past events must be finite. Therefore, the series of past events can't go back forever. Rather, the universe must have begun to exist. This purely philosophical conclusion has been confirmed by remarkable discoveries in astronomy and astrophysics during the 20th century. The astrophysical evidence indicates that the universe began to exist in a great explosion called the Big Bang about 15 billion years ago. The standard Big Bang model describes a universe which is not eternal in the past, but rather which came into existence a finite time ago. Moreover, and this deserves underscoring, the origin that it posits is an absolute origin out of nothing. For not only all matter and energy, but physical space and time themselves came into being at the initial cosmological singularity which marks the boundary of space and time. There can be no natural physical cause of the Big Bang event, since, in the words of one philosopher of science, the definition of a singularity entails that it is impossible to extend the space-time manifold beyond the singularity. This rules out, he concludes, the idea that the singularity is an effect of some prior natural process. Now, sometimes objectors appeal to non-standard models of the expanding universe in an attempt to avert the absolute beginning predicted by the standard model. But while such theories are possible, it has been the overwhelming verdict of the scientific theory that none of them is more probable than the Big Bang Theory. The devil is in the details. And once you get down to specifics, you find that there is no mathematically consistent model which has been so successful in its predictions or is corroborated by the evidence as the traditional Big Bang Theory. For example, some theories like the oscillating universe theory, which expands and contracts forever, or the chaotic inflationary universe, which continually spawns new universes, do have a potentially infinite future, but they turn out to have only a finite past. Vacuum fluctuation universe theories, which uh, postulate an eternal vacuum out of which our universe is born, cannot explain why, if the vacuum is eternal, we don't observe an infinitely old universe. The quantum gravity universe theory, propounded by the famous physicist Stephen Hawking, if interpreted realistically, still involves an absolute origin of the universe, even though the universe does not begin in a singularity as it does in the standard Big Bang Theory. In sum, according to Hawking, and I quote, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang, end quote.
And thus I think we have good grounds, both philosophically and scientifically, for thinking that the universe had an absolute beginning. Now, logically, the beginning of the universe either had a cause or it was uncaused. Now this tends to be very awkward for the atheist. For as Anthony Kenny of Oxford University urges, a proponent of the Big Bang Theory, at least if he is an atheist, must believe that the universe came from nothing and by nothing. But surely that doesn't make sense. Out of nothing, nothing comes. The atheist philosopher Kai Nielsen gives the following illustration. He says, suppose you suddenly hear a loud bang, and you ask me, what made that bang? And I reply, nothing. It just happened. He says, you wouldn't accept that. In fact, you would find my reply quite unintelligible. Well, what's true of the little bang is also true of the big bang as well. It must have had a cause which brought the universe into being. Now, from what we've already said, uh, a number of attributes of this cause can be deduced. As the cause of space and time, this cause must be an uncaused, changeless, timeless, immaterial, and enormously powerful being which created the universe. It must be uncaused because there cannot be an infinite series of causes. It must be timeless and therefore changeless, at least without the universe, because it created time. Because it also created space. It must transcend space as well, and therefore be immaterial, not physical. This cause must be unimaginably powerful, since it created the universe without any material cause. Moreover, it had to be either personal or impersonal. And there are at least two good reasons to think that this cause is personal. First, the personhood of the cause of the universe is implied by its timelessness and immateriality. Since the only things we know of that can possess these attributes are either minds or abstract objects, like numbers. But abstract objects don't stand in causal relations. Therefore, the transcendent cause of the origin of the universe must be of the order of mind. The cause of the origin of the universe is an uncreated, unembodied mind. Second, only a personal cause can explain the origin of a temporal effect from a timeless cause. If the cause of the origin of the universe were an impersonal set of necessary and sufficient conditions, it would be impossible for the cause to exist without its effect. For if the sufficient conditions for the uh, cause, or rather if the sufficient conditions for the effect were given, then the effect must be given as well. For example, the cause of water's freezing is the temperature being below zero degrees centigrade. If the temperature were eternally below zero degrees, then any water that was around would be frozen from eternity. It would be impossible for the water to just begin to freeze a finite time ago. So if the cause is timelessly present, the effect should be timelessly present as well. The only way for the cause to be timeless and for the effect to begin in time is for the cause to be a personal agent who freely 
chooses to create an effect in time without any prior determining conditions. And thus the cause of the universe must be a free personal agent. So, in conclusion then, we are brought, I believe, not merely to a transcendent cause of the universe, but to its personal creator. And this is what everybody means by God. <laughs> Debates are fine for funny topics, when you can do a mutton jet punch versus Juliet and take the cheap points of each other and go for laughs. This is a topic that has been dividing people for millennia. It's probably the most important subject there is, and I would much prefer to have a lengthy and amiable discussion. But so be it. I was uh, warned about uh, Bill's arguments because someone sent me a videotape of a very similar discussion which Bill starred. So I'm familiar with his, uh, his line of argument. Although much of it, I think, is more appropriate to the next debate, which I understand will be the strongest bill we will be discussing, whether or not a 21st century scientist can be a Christian. The thing that has to be said about Bill is that he, too, is an atheist. I wonder if he's aware of the extent of his own atheism, because there's many a God he doesn't believe in. Ra, Osiris, Jupiter, Joe, Zeus, Apollo, Mars, Mercury, Neptune, Vulcan, Bacchus, Manon, Pan, and Pluto come to mind. Nor does he worship Thor or Odin. The gods of the Aztecs, the Incas, the Mayans, and the Toltecs are not in his, um, in his theology. And you can bet he's an atheist when it comes to goddesses like Diana, Minerva, Athena, Venus, and Aphrodite. Does he believe in the God that guides the uh, activities of Bin Laden, who in turn believes that God guided the Boeings to the World Trade Center? Is he enthusiastic about the God that endorses George Bush's uh, plans of massive retaliation? Does he advocate a white God, a male God? Or does he admit to the possibility that God might be black or female? Who is God odorless and sexless? I'll presume that, uh, so anyway, it's a simple fact that as far as 99.9% of deities are concerned, Bill and I share a common ground. We don't believe in them. Now, I presume you'll argue, in fact, he has, that uh, the God he believes in is fundamentally the Christian God, the God is love God, the God who makes up a third of the Holy Trinity. And uh, for that God, I'm sad to say, like Christianity itself, has as many forms and faces and identities as any of the paintings of past and present. In the next discussion, I'll be trying to make the point that there are almost as many Christianities as there are Christians, which is why the, the greatest enemy of Christianity is not the old atheists passing through, but the Christians themselves who fight and hack at each other and have for centuries. But uh, equally true that the goal Christians postulate has many faces. Now, as a believer in the God's love God, he must feel uneasy about the Old Testament Jehovah, who destroyed the, destroyed the entire population of this planet 
saving Noah, his family, and a boatload of animals when he was miffed by human misbehaviour, or by the god that nuked Sodom and Gomorrah when the citizens were behaving like the denizens of Oxford Street and King's Cross, <laughs> by the brutal sourpuss who created eternal damnation for people to suffer it. Then this god clearly differs from the god of love, who sent his only begotten son from heaven to save us from death, the death that he cursed us with, along with original sin, just a few begats earlier. Jesus said that his father's house has many mansions, and the landlord, God, has many gods, and you can't believe in all of them. You have to choose one and say, this is the God. Now, Bill will argue, has argued, that the principal reason for believing in God is, yes, that you need a God for creation. Although I have to warn you, Bill, your current hypotheses about scientific views are somewhat out of date, but we'll tackle that in our next. I've done 12 television programs and two books with Paul Davies. Paul Davies believes in God. He's one of the few, very few prominent scientists who does. But uh, Paul's God is by no means Bill's God. But because Bill is not a Christian, a Christian fundamentalist, he hasn't argued for a six-day creation and a seventh-day rest. He's conceded the likelihood of the Big Bang, although the jury is out and there are other now contesting theories. But picking up that argument that you can't get something out of nothing, Bill insists that God was the something that gave birth to time and space and matter and energy to all the wonders that now surround us. In effect, the Big Bang is a great orgasm. And that reminds me, in fact, of the, the great Egyptian mythology surrounding Ra and that creation of the universe, just for the may amuse or interest you, that uh, Ra stands on a little mountain called the Ben Ben, a little formalised mountain above the primordial waters, and masturbates and from his semen creates everything. It's funny, isn't it, how many of the creation myths eliminate women. <laughs> but in essence, Bill argues that there has to be a beginning and God provided. Now, this is brings us to atheism. Theologians and priests and congregations war about God's nature. We atheists are an agreeable people. We agree on one thing, just one. We agree that we don't believe in God, in any God. It's as simple as not believing in Father Christmas or the Tooth Fairy. Others are variable, humanists, communists, rationalists, sceptics, etc., may mount all sorts of arguments and take ideological positions. But the atheist simply says, I don't believe. Thus, atheism isn't a philosophy, isn't a morality, isn't an elaborate set of beliefs. It's simply a disbelief. Thanks, but no thanks. If I tell you that I don't believe in Father Christmas, I don't think you expect me to mount a huge philosophical argument around it. You'd probably think, well, that's fair and reasonable. I've never believed in God, but God knows I tried to. <laughs> I gave up on God when I was five. Everyone around me believed or seemed to believe in God, like my dad, who was a congregational minister. And I prayed for belief, but my prayers weren't answered. I left messages on God's answering machine. He never returned my calls. And whilst waiting, I suddenly discovered that believing in God was unnecessary. 
surplus to intellectual requirements. God was redundant. And he's right, I came to a period a contemplation, a terrified contemplation of eternity. I'd lie in my little bed at night, my grandparents reject, rejected the brass bed in the sleeper, and I would fall up through the roof every night, fall up through the darkness, gaining speed, being more and more terrified as I went through the planets and the suns and the endless, what seemed to be the endless distance. And the concept of eternity, like infinity, was overwhelmingly dreadful. Well, one night I solved the problem about uh, infinity. I bounced off a rocky wall that I'd discovered surrounding the universe, like an eggshell around the egg, and I fell all the way back into the middle with a great sigh of relief. It was okay. There was an end. Trouble was, next night, when I repeated the nocturnal flight, I broke through that rocky surrounding and found that uh, no, there wasn't. And I found that it was unnecessary to think of the beginning. And then even if you did, God wasn't much of a help. If there has to be a beginning and God was the beginning, I said to my grandmother, then who began God? And whereupon she boxed my ears. <laughs> Ten years later, when reading Why I Am Not a Christian, I learned that Bertrand Russell asked himself exactly the same question when he was 19. No one boxed Russell's ears, but there was a deafening silence, during which he realised that the notion of God was superfluous. Far from providing the answer, God was simply another question. God was the man we gave to what we didn't understand. The trouble with God is that as science advances, he retreats. Stephen J. Hawkins, among others, proffers a version or vision of the universe, ranging from the quantum mechanical to the great drama of the cosmos, that needs no water at all. He eliminates God from the equation. As for God's relationship with human beings, what relationship? We're only here because after a few billion of those years that uh, Bill was describing, an asteroid plotted the planet and wiped out the dinosaurs, allowing a new species to be dominant, namely us. In turn, we're likely to be wiped out ourselves, either by our own stupidity or by another asteroid, leaving the planet to be dominated by insects. And if so, who will be praying the mantis crater? An insect god. But that's what worshippers do. They create God in their own image, according to their needs, their circumstances, and cultural attitudes. So many gods, all mutually exclusive, concepts that cancel each other out. You can't talk about God unless you define the God you're talking about. Otherwise it gets so fuzzy, so amorphous, so vague, so contradictory, as to be meaningless. People in any case will believe what they want to believe. I have a simple suggestion and I always end letters to my Christian and other religious critics in the same way. Let's get on with treating each other decently, and don't let a little thing like God come between us. Thank you. participating in this debate was that I was afraid that he would use uh, his infamous uh, rhetoric and, uh, and ridicule to reduce the debate to a sort of uh, contest of wits in which I would surely not be able to compete with him. 
And so I'm glad that he has treated it in a substantive and serious way uh, that's worthy of, of the topic. Now, you remember I said I was going to defend two contentions in today's debate. First, that there's no good reason to think that atheism is true. Now, you notice in his opening speech, Philip didn't present any arguments for atheism. He gave us no justification, no reason to think that God does not exist. Instead, he made two comments. First, he says, well, Bill is an atheist, too, because he doesn't believe in many gods. But that's not what atheism means. Atheism is the belief that there is no God. So as long as I believe in one God, that means I am a theist, not an atheist. The Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which is the standard reference work in the field, says, according to the usual definition, an atheist is a person who maintains that there is no God. So that is the uh, claim that Philip needs to defend tonight. My argument, as I present it, is consistent with any of the great monotheistic faiths uh, in the world today. I have argued that there is a personal creator of the universe who is immaterial, timeless, changeless, spaceless, enormously powerful, and who created the universe out of nothing. And that fundamental theistic conclusion is compatible with any sort of monotheistic religion and gives us a specific idea of the kind of deity we're talking about. Secondly, Philip responded, atheism isn't a belief or a set of belief, it's just the absence of belief. But again, without wanting to talk or, or quibble about semantics, that's just not what atheism is. As the Encyclopedia of Philosophy says, atheism is, is the claim that there is no God. Philip has confused atheism with agnosticism. Agnosticism is the absence of belief in God. But atheism is the belief that there is no such person as God. And therefore, if he's going to defend atheism rather than agnosticism, he needs to give some justification for believing there is no such person as God. Secondly, his redefinition of atheism trivializes atheism. Because if atheism is merely the absence of God belief, then even little infants are atheists because they don't have a God belief, right? But can you imagine somebody, uh, one woman talking to another and saying, oh, surely, I just heard that she gave birth to baby twin girls. And she says, yes, it's true, but you know, it's so sad. They're both atheists. <laughs> well, that trivializes the claim to be an atheist. In fact, on that definition, my cat, Muff, is an atheist because Muff doesn't have any belief in God. So if we're going to take atheism seriously, it is the claim that there is no such person as God. And therefore, it requires justification. And so we still have yet to hear from Philip as to why we should think there is no such person as God. Secondly, I presented what I think are good reasons to think that theism is true. And I did it by means of a, a series of three disjunctions. First, either the universe had a beginning or it did not. And I argued that both philosophically and scientifically, the universe did have a beginning. Philip didn't give a response to this, and I won't have a chance to respond now until my last five-minute speech since he didn't respond. He only alluded to Paul Davies. But I want to quote from an interview which Philip had with Paul Davies called The Big Questions in the Beginning. And this is what Davies said in that interview. The coming into being of the universe, as discussed in modern science, is not just a matter of imposing some sort of organization or structure upon a previous incoherent state but literally the coming into being of all physical things from nothing. 
So that is Paul Davies' view, and I don't think he's changed it because in March of this year, Paul Davies writes in his lecture, The Big Bang, and uh, before March of 2002, contrary to popular belief, the Big Bang was not the explosion of a compressed lump of matter in a pre-existing void. Space itself comes into existence from nothing at the Big Bang. So, as Philip knows from his own interviews with Davies, standard Big Bang cosmology requires the creation of the universe literally out of nothing. Now that leads to my second disjunction. Either that beginning had a cause or it did not have a cause. And it seems to me to be metaphysically absurd to say that the universe just popped into being uncaused out of nothing. When you think about it, that is worse than magic. I mean, when the magician pulls a rabbit out of the hat, at least you've got the hat and you've got the magician. But on the atheistic view, the rabbit or the universe just pops into existence uncaused out of nothing. And it seems to me that that's simply metaphysically impossible. There had to be a cause that brought the universe into being. The third disjunction that I examined then was whether or not that cause is personal or impersonal. And I gave two arguments as to why the cause had to be a personal being. First, it's implied by its timelessness and immateriality, which suggests that it is of the order of mind. And secondly, only if the cause is a free personal agent can you explain how a timeless effect, or rather a timeless cause, can give rise to a temporal effect with a beginning like the universe. And I think these are very persuasive and powerful arguments for thinking that the cause of the universe is indeed personal. Now against this argument, Philip simply raised the question, who caused God? But I think that once you understand the concept of what it is to be a necessary, timeless, spaceless, uncaused being, you can see that that question becomes a meaningless question. Keith Ward, the British philosopher of religion, in his book, God, Chance, and Necessity, writes as follows. He says, if one asks, what caused God? The answer is that nothing could bring into being a reality which wholly transcends space-time and which is self-existent. To fail to grasp such an idea is to fail to grasp what God is, end quote. In other words, once we understand that God is the uncaused, spaceless, timeless creator of the universe, you can see that it's, it's meaningless or trivial to say, what is the cause of an uncaused being? That, that's like cracking your brain wondering, why is it that all bachelors that I meet are unmarried? Why aren't there any married bachelors? See, it's, it's part of the concept. It's conceptually necessary that a bachelor is an unmarried male. Similarly, it's conceptually necessary that a, a timeless, spaceless, self-existent being doesn't have a cause. So unless Philip can show some sort of absurdity in saying that there is a timeless, spaceless, self-existent being, I think we have good grounds for believing that there is a personal creator of the universe who is timeless, spaceless, changeless, immaterial, and who brought the universe into being out of nothing, a conclusion which is consistent with and suggestive of the position that all of the great monotheistic faiths have held long before the discovery of Big Bang cosmology or any of the evidence that I've shared with you today. And therefore, I am persuaded that theism is the most rational and plausible view that an intelligent thinking person in the 21st century can hold. Thank you. What's the point of postulating an answer which is in itself 
huge question. What's the point of coming up with an argument which cannot be dealt with? Ladies and gentlemen, I, when I was a little boy, when I was five, when I was struggling with this, with this issue, which would dominate my life for many, many years, I would regress back to the beginning, the postulated beginning that my father, the Christian minister, spoke about from his pulpit. And I'd insist that there had to be something before the beginning. And before that, and before that, and before that, just as I discovered from that painful bouncing off the, um, off the, the great rocky vault above the ceiling of my um, sleeper, that there couldn't be an end. And I was fascinated by Christianity's lopsidedness. Christianity taught me in Sunday school that there had to be a beginning, but there couldn't be an end. There had to be a moment of, de of detonation, of creation, whatever. This is long before, of course, Big Bang Theory. There had to be a beginning when God, which God would create, but there couldn't be an ending. And this seemed to me to be inelegant. If there can't be an ending, and there can't be because we're going to live in, dwell in paradise through all eternity, why does there have to be a beginning? So at that age, it seemed to me that the beginning was a redundant notion, that it was much more harmonious and even in balance to live in a universe, in a cosmos, which was endless, both ends with time and space being mirror images of each other. If you introduce the beginning and you insist that it was begun by God, the question that I asked myself and that Bertram Russell asked himself cannot be thrown aside with clever little metaphors about rabbits and hats and magicians. We know that the magician pulls a rabbit out of a hat and we know where the magician came from. In the one breath, this gentleman tells us that it is intellectually inadequate, intellectually inferior, trivial, to not be able to grasp the notion of an endless existing, pre-existing thing, object, no, not object, presence, spirit, whatever. And at the same time, insists that uh, because there has to be a beginning, that is going to be the proof of what happened before. It's cyclic, it doesn't get you anywhere, it makes you giddy, it doesn't help. You have to accept the fact that it is possible to postulate a universe, many universes, that just go on and on. Now, the Big Bang is one theory, and it's a theory that, at the moment, a majority of scientists hold to, but it's losing ground. But when I was growing up, and I heard about the Big Bang, it seemed to me that why not have an endless oscillation, I think we mentioned this very briefly, an endless oscillation of Big Bangs, where the universe expands, reaches the point to predestined by the second law of thermodynamics where everything dies and then falls back in on itself and bang, off it goes again. So you imagine, therefore, an infant progression and progression of Big Bangs. But there have always been Big Bangs and always will be. But they simply will go on through all eternity rather like pearls on a, um, on a necklace, on a long necklace string. There are new theories, however, that come out of the struggle the rather hubristic struggle to find a theory for everything. We've gone from particles, we've gone from the subatomic world to string theory. We're now moving from string theory to end theory, membrane theory, or brains, which argues that the only way to make the maths work, which have been tantalising scientists ever since uh, Big Bang Theory and Einstein, is to postulate an infinity of universes, not sequentially, but all at once and perhaps we'll deal with this in the next lecture, there is currently an argument gaining enormous power 
that the answer lies in the fact that there's not just this universe, but an infinity of others. And that they coexist with ours. They're in this room. We can't see them. We can't feel them. Some of them you are in. Others you are not. Some of them you are in with a different name. Some of them the maths didn't work out at that moment of gestation and uh, nothing happens at them. But the way M theory, which is now linked to string theory, which is linked to E equals MC squared, into a very powerful idea that many scientists believe has got us on the edge of the theory of everything, which will explain the totality of creation. The way it's going is that it may, there may be billions and billions and billions of universes in which this is just one tiny effervescent, emivescent event. Now, I find the whole concept of God and that evaporates. Once again, there is no beginning, there is no end. It just goes on and on forever in a scale that is simply staggering, far beyond the imaginative scale of monotheistic faiths. And I have to say in parenthesis before I sit down again that it's fascinating that Bill argues, makes his argument for the existence of God, talking about the Big Bang and uh, matters arising, which would have got him burnt at the stake as a heretic by fellow Christians not so long ago. And it's a great pleasure that I observe that I can be here today talking to you and mounting counter-arguments, which also would have got me tortured by the Inquisition and put to death. So I suppose we're making some progress. I doubt that we're going to resolve this issue in the next 30 minutes. It has been tantalising and making people's heads ache for thousands of years. And just as no atheist can ever prove, can ever prove, that there is no God, no theist has ever proved there is. In fact, uh, I remind you of that wonderful statement by Douglas Adams, my famous namesake, in his testament, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. We are dealing with a God who refuses to prove himself. I don't find that God necessary. I don't have to prove anything. The proof has to lie with those who postulate, not with those who reject. Thank you. In my closing statement, I'd like to draw together some of the threads of the debate to see what conclusions we might draw. First, I think it's evident that in this afternoon's debate, we've not heard any good reasons to think that atheism is true. At best, if my argument fails today, we're left with agnosticism. But we've found no good reason to think that God does not exist. What about the reason that I gave to think that theism is true? Well, first of all, I argued that the universe had a beginning. And my philosophical argument has gone unrefuted in today's debate. So even if the scientific evidence failed, we still have the scientific argument against, or the philosophical argument against the infinitude of the past. But what about that scientific evidence? Well, here uh, Philip suggested in his last speech two possible models that are aimed at averting the absolute beginning predicted by the standard model. First, he suggests the oscillating model. Uh, which contracts and expands forever. I dealt with that, however, in my first speech. The oscillating model was popular back in the 1960s, but it's no longer defended today because it contradicts the singularity theorems developed by Hawking and Penrose. Stephen Hawking, in his 1997 book, The Nature of Space and Time, says, the Hawking-Penrose singularity theorem 
led to the abandonment of attempts to argue that there was a previous contracting phase and a non-singular bounce into expansion. Instead, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. So it turned out that these oscillating models have an infinite future, perhaps, but only a finite past. What about the theory of everything, or string theory, or M-theory? Again, the fact is that uh, this model also fails to secure the infinitude of the past. In very recent work, uh, done in September of last year by Arvind Board and Alex uh, Velenkin, uh, in cooperation with Alan Guth of MIT, they were able to generalize their results on inflationary models that I spoke about in my first speech in such a way as to extend these conclusions to other models, including M-theory uh, string cosmology. And specifically, they noted, I quote, our argument can be straightforwardly extended to cosmology in higher dimensions, specifically brain cosmology mentioned by Philip in his last speech. So according to Vilenkin, and I quote, it follows from our theorem that the cyclic universe is past incomplete. That is to say, the need for an initial singularity has not been eliminated, and therefore such universes are not past incomplete. So again, when you look at the evidence scientifically, it is on the side of that disjunction that the universe had an absolute beginning, and that's the conclusion that most cosmologists accept. Now, if it had a beginning, it therefore follows, I believe, that that beginning had to have a cause. And here, Philip didn't dispute this, that if the universe did begin to exist, there must have been a cause which brought it into being. Then I argued that that cause must be personal, and he did not dispute either of my arguments for the personhood of the first cause. Instead, in his last speech, he says, but what is the point of providing an answer that simply raises further questions? Well, all scientific explanations are like that. Every scientific explanation you give raises further questions. And that isn't a deficit of the explanation. If we learn that a disease is caused by a certain virus, we'll still want to know then where did that virus come from. So that the very nature of uh, explanation arises further questions. And I think that the God hypothesis does raise profound questions about the nature of God and his relationship to us. Does he care for us? Has he revealed himself in any special way that we might know him more fully? Or has he remained aloof and distance from the world that he has made? He says, well, uh, in Christianity, there is a beginning, but there is no end. And this is aesthetically displeasing. Well, but ironically, this is exactly what modern science teaches. Modern science says that the universe in time began at the moment of the Big Bang, and the universe will simply expand forever, world without end. So the very asymmetry that he finds distasteful is postulated by modern science as well as by the Christian faith. In fact, any linear view of time that has a beginning of the universe has such an asymmetrical quality to it. And I, I simply would say that the facts contradict his aesthetic tastes. And therefore, we need to go with, with the facts. Finally, in conclusion, let me just say a personal word since Philip felt free to share from his own autobiography. I myself wasn't raised in a church-going family or, or a Christian home as Philip was. But as a teenager, I began to ask the big questions in life about the meaning of existence. And I also felt that darkness and despair that he writes of in his book. But I found the answer in Jesus Christ and in God. I found that through Jesus Christ, I could come to know this personal creator in a personal way that invested my meaning with joy and purpose 
that I never dreamt possible. And I would encourage you, if you're an open-minded seeker today, to do what I did, to look into this, begin to explore, keep an open mind, because I believe it could change your life in the same way that it changed mine.
when the god that, uh, that William was postulating will also slowly die, like the second law of thermodynamics, which is in fact the one thing that all scientists currently agree on, that at the ultimate death of this universe, however it was born. We may be about to live, therefore, in a world without gods of any sort, in a world without God. And if we do so, it is on his deathbed. I don't think that should be a cause for mourning. It may, in fact, be a wonderful opportunity to see if we can make a better fist of this world we live in without the great divisions created by belief in God, let alone by belief in Jesus Christ. I have a great affection for Jesus. I think he was one of the great stand-up comics of history. I think his one line is are devastating. And although we know that uh, there's very little known about the historical Jesus as Christian scholars from uh, well, all Christian scholars of any relevance agree, the historical Jesus is very hard to find. I have great respect for him, but I do not respect the Judeo-Christian God because I regard him or her or it as a brute who has created great cruelty and great horror in this world, if he or she in fact exists. No, we don't sort it out, Bill. We'll never, we'll never agree. This is something that will never happen, I think, as long as there are humans that will be an agreement on this issue. And probably it would be boring if there was. But I don't get to the point I made before, the one thing which we must agree is that this division between us, in your case, over the existence of God, but otherwise should not stop us working together on important issues involving justice, compassion and decency. At the end of the day, I have to say, God doesn't matter. Thank you. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.